Acts chapter 4, um, I want to draw your attention to verse 1, and we read through verse 12, and as they were speaking to the people, that is, Peter and John, the, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, I want to just, I just want to say one comment here, and then we'll read the rest without comment. You're wondering who are the Sadducees. If you grew up with the Bible, oftentimes you will uh, see that Jesus has interactions with two groups of religious leaders. You got the Pharisees and you have the Sadducees, and both of them did not get along very well. And the Sadducees were those who were of what we call the aristocratic class among Jews, and they were those who were quite closely aligned with the Roman government. So in a sense, what you have here is you have the, the hand of the church, so to speak, the religious leaders in hand with the Roman government. That's never a good thing. But that's what they were doing at the time. The Sadducees also believed that the Messianic age had already been inaugurated, so they really weren't looking for a Messiah. They weren't looking for Jesus, the very Jesus that Peter and John were preaching about. And you'll notice, as I'll talk a little bit later, that Peter and John were preaching about what we call the resurrection. That is the fact that Jesus is not dead, but he's very much alive, and he promises life to those who entrust themselves to him. Resurrection life in this life as well as the life to come. Pharisees had a problem with all these things. Therefore, they had a problem with Peter and John. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about... This is astounding... 5,000. So after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the church is growing, grows to 3,000, and now 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, especially verse 12 Simple words, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Now, with those words, I want to draw your attention to uh, question answer 29, and what we do here is I read the question, and then let's give the answer together, and let's not mumble these words, the same with conviction. All right, here's the question. Why is the Son of God called Jesus that is Savior? And let's say together, because he saves us from all our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Now this question, do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints in themselves or anywhere else also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No, though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, 
for those who by true faith accept the Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. All right. Before I get into the passage, I want to draw your attention to these two catechism questions and answers. Um, we, we are, what, what, what this catechetical document is doing, basically, is laying out before us the basics of the Christian faith. Really. That's the whole intent of this catechism series that we're going through, to deal with the basics of the Christian faith that are codified in the very creed that we confessed with brothers and sisters of the Church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. It's called the Apostles' Creed, right? And there's a point in the Apostles' Creed where we confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And over the last few weeks, we've been considering together the person and the work of God the Father. Now what we're doing is we're transitioning to the second person of the Holy Trinity, the person of Jesus Christ. And not just the person of Christ, but the work of Jesus Christ. So in the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. The question is, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? I don't care if you've been in the Christian faith for a long time or a short time. We need to know who Jesus is. And what this catechetical document does, and what, above all, the Bible passage we're dealing with tells us is, is that Jesus is, is two things for the Christian. He's an exclusive Savior, and He's a sufficient Savior. Now, what I mean by that, let me explain it very simply for the sake of any children or for those of us who might be grappling with the things of the Christian faith. When, when Christians talk about Jesus being an exclusive Savior, they're really saying He's the only one. Okay, he, he's, the, he's the only one who can bring us to God, and he's the only one who's qualified to bring us to God. Even Jesus himself teaches us this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, uh-uh, no one comes to the Father but through me. So what Christians tell others in the world is, you may not like what I'm about to tell you, but Jesus is the only way to God. And Jesus is the only way to get into a right relationship with God. But closely aligned with what we call the exclusivity of Christ is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And what Christians mean by that is that Jesus is a completely sufficient Savior. When he saves, he saves to the uttermost. Jesus is not a 50% Savior, where Jesus comes halfway and says, I'll do this for you, but now you have to do this for me if you're going to be in right standing with God. Jesus is not an 80% Savior. Jesus is not even a 90 or 95 or even a 99% Savior. Man, he is 100%. So when Jesus comes into this world and gives his life for us, it is completely sufficient to bring us to God when we entrust ourselves to this Jesus through repentance and faith. That's the basic message of the Christian faith, and that's the message that we are supposed to embrace, and it's a message that we are to bring to the world. But let me tell you something. If you embrace this, many in the world are okay with that. If that's, one, if that's your personal belief, this is how the world deals with Christianity. If that's your personal belief, well, you have the freedom to believe that. Just don't voice it on me. You know? don't, don't tell me that Jesus is the only way. Because when you do that, what you're saying is all other religions are wrong. And you're right. And how do you think that's interpreted? It's pretty arrogant, narrow, and intolerant. One of the greatest challenges of a person named uh, Tim Keller who has been uh, ministering in a church in Manhattan, New York, 
um, he says, one of the greatest challenges over a couple de decades of ministry there has been what we call the exclusivity of Christ. A lot of people get their arms up about that, and they, um, they find it rather offensive. If you put the, the quote up, here's what he says. During my two decades in New York City, I've had numerous opportunities to ask people, what is your biggest problem with Christianity? One of the most frequent answers I have heard over the years can be summed up in one word, one word, exclusivity. Jesus is the only way. A 20-something British man living in New York City said this, religious exclusivity is just too narrow. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, by the way, other religions say this as well, the world will never know peace. I mean, if you're going to stick to your guns as Christians say Jesus is the only way, then what you're really saying is all the other ways are wrong, and if you really want peace with others and you want to get along with others, you've got to get rid of that. And the Christian's response very simply is this. Listen, if you want peace, true peace, lasting peace, genuine peace, and ultimately peace with God, you have to embrace Jesus as the only way because if you take the Bible seriously, you realize that Jesus alone is the only one who is truly qualified as both God and man to bring man, to bring humanity back to God. That's what we all need, and that's what the world needs. Peter, Peter puts it like this in the text of four, uh, Acts 4, verse 12. There's no other name that is given among men by which we must be saved and by the name of Jesus. Simple, offensive, and beautiful. Okay, let's go and take a look at our passage. You have Peter and John. They're speaking about Jesus. And there's individuals who are listening to them to speak about Jesus. And one of the groups that are mentioned, as I uh, noted in the scripture reading, are the Sadducees. Now again, the Sadducees are part of the Aristotelian class. They were those who were closely aligned with the Roman government. They were those who believed that the Messianic age had already been inaugurated, so they weren't really looking for Jesus as a Messiah. And also, uh, they were those who didn't believe in a resurrection. Pharisees did, the other group. The Sadducees did not. So when Peter and John are speaking about Jesus and the resurrection, not only Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection of all those in time who placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they were offended by that to the point where they arrested Peter and John. And the next day, they were brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, to give an account of their preaching. By the way, they were arrested not only because they were preaching Jesus, but also because in the name of Jesus, they also were healing individuals as a testimony to the power of the Christian faith and the power of Christ himself. And in one particular instance, they healed a man who was disabled from birth. The man simply could not walk. And the man was begging for alms at the temple, just as if you go through Abbotsford, you find many homeless people today asking for alms or asking for money. Well, this man was down and out. He was asking for alms from, from Peter and John. And you remember, Peter said these words to this man who was disabled. He said, you know, honestly, I don't have silver or gold. I don't have money to give you. I don't have alms to give you. But what I do have, I give to you. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And immediately the man got up and walked. 
and there are people who notice this and people who are astounded by this, so much so that they were grappling with the, the merits and the message of the Christian faith and they were becoming Christians. Now, the, the, the Christians were not really, I don't know if you know this, but Christians were not called Christians until a bit later. We read the first time they were called Christians is in Acts chapter 11. We're only in Acts chapter 4. So up to this time, they're only known as members of the way. Sounds kind of cultic, right? Kind of sectarian. And uh, that's how the Jews considered Christians at the time. They were just members of a sect, some kind of weird group, talking about this Jesus, the Messiah. Well, so that's how they were considering. So Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of the Jews, had a lot of power, a lot of influence. And the Sanhedrin asked them this question, um, by, by, you need to tell us this, by, by what name or by what power do you do this? Not just the preaching, but the healing. And Peter's response in chapter 4, verse 10, is this. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by, listen to this, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He's referring to the disabled man who they healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That is the most important stone of the building. Jesus has come for you. You crucified him. You killed him. But let me tell you what. It's by his name and his power that this man was healed. Now I want you to notice something in chapters 3 and 4. It's kind of interesting. As you go through chapters 3 and 4, you see how often the name of Jesus Christ is mentioned. If you take a look. All right. Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. He said that to the disabled man. Again, and his name has made this man, the disabled man whom Peter healed, perfectly healthy in the presence of you all. And they, that is the Sanhedrin, inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man... Peter says, is standing before you today. And finally, this, our text, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Kind of interesting, isn't it? How many times it's mentioned? The name, the name, the name, the name. Why this emphasis on the name of Jesus? Because, I tell you what, the name of Jesus carries with it power. The power to save the power to heal, the power to restore. There's power in that, that name itself. You know, the, the name, Jesus wasn't called just any name. He wasn't called Joe or Ralph or Charlie or something like that or some kind of Hebrew name. He was specifically named Jesus. Remember, if you know this story from the Bible, that when... Um, there was, a, there was an angel named Gabriel who came to Jesus' legal father, not his heavenly father, but his legal father, and, and instructed and told um, Joseph that Mary, his betrothed, was going to give birth, right, to this, to this Jesus. And you remember that it was Gabriel who said to Joseph, he basically didn't leave it up to Joseph to name Jesus. He says, you need to give him this name. You will call his name Jesus. Jesus in the Greek. Yeshua in the Hebrew, meaning the same thing. Meaning deliverer. 
meaning Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. So the name of Jesus is very closely connected with his identity and his calling. And the identity of call and calling of Jesus is that he is a Savior, the one who saves us, God's people from their sins. So there's power in that name to save, but there is also power um, in that name to heal and restore. And don't we see this in the ministry of Jesus Christ? You notice that Jesus' primary calling, when you read through the four Gospels, is that Jesus' primary calling was to preach and to teach. But in addition to that, Jesus performed many miracles that were a demonstration of the power of the King, King Jesus, and the kingdom that he's come to bring. We see this in the apostles as we take a look at the book of Acts. They were not only preaching, but they were healing. They were restoring individuals. There's power in that name to save and to restore. And sometimes you even see this today. Instances of people absolutely turning a new leaf and changing from the inside out. This, this power did not die with Jesus and the apostles. It's very much operative today. That's our hope when we speak the gospel to others. Let me give you a quick example of that to give us a little bit of a breather here. Um, this, this comes from uh, something that I read uh, years ago in a book called Finding God at Harvard. It revolves around a man named Christopher Sarsing, who was a young man who was a Hindu, and he worshipped the gods of his religion. Now, if you know anything about Hinduism, you know that they worship many gods. When I worked in Montreal and worked in, among seafarers, I would oftentimes go to the ships, and sometimes I would go to Russian ships, sometimes German ships, sometimes Filipino ships, and sometimes Indian ships. And when I would get on board, the Indians would invite me to their room, well, let's have tea or let's have coffee. We sit there, and many times they would have pictures or they have these little images, you know, on the shelves of their little rooms on the ship. They were the Hindu gods. This man was worshiping these, these, these gods of his religion. Well, one evening when he was in high school, he tells this story. When he was in high school, he was studying chemistry late in the night when suddenly he felt a slap on his face. And it greatly frightened him because there was nobody in the room but him. He felt the slap and then he was thrown on his bed and he was, was struggling with some kind of force that was choking him. And he thought that he was going to be choked unconscious or he was going to die. He didn't know what to do. And so he tried to break free and eventually he broke free. And he was so troubled by this, as I think any one of us would be troubled by that, that he, 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 the next day he went to a friend of his who happened to be a Christian and he explained to him what happened to him that night in that room. And the Christian friend, being somewhat discerning, said, well, probably what happened is that you opened yourself up to demonic influences that stand behind the so-called gods that you're worshiping. So what I suggest that you do is that you begin reading the Gospels first four books of the New Testament, of course, that record the life and the ministry of Jesus. And he did. And in the book, Finding God at Harvard, um, he wrote this. He wrote, I began to read the gospel accounts of Jesus to learn more about him. It struck me, he struck me as utterly unique. One night as I was meditating on the account of Jesus' death and resurrection, I asked Jesus to forgive my sins, set me free from the bondage of karma, and become Lord of my life. The next morning, I looked at the images on my altar, and I knew that I could never return to them. I had the deep conviction that I belonged to Christ, and from that point on, my devotion and affections were set upon Him. It was not to religion, but it was to Christ that I was drawn. He, he realized at that moment 
as the Lord was working in him, that, that his so-called gods did not have the power to release him from the forces that were plaguing him that evening. It was only the power of Christ. It was only the name of Christ. As Peter says, there's no other name under heaven by which we must, we, the word must, we must be saved than by the name of Jesus so what we confess as Christians is, is this. We confess the, the power of Jesus to save and the power of Jesus' name to restore. And, and we confess that really in contrast, of all, uh, in contrast to all the religions of the world and all the so-called gods of the world and worldviews of the world and philosophies and so on, all truth and all power and all restoration, personal restoration and restoration with God, a true relationship with God can only come through Jesus. So that's why we confess as Christians, although people find it offensive, that there's only one way to God. As Jesus himself teaches and the apostles teach, there's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus. Now, if I may add this one thing, and I want to draw your attention to, uh, just for a moment, to the catechism, I want to start um, drawing to a close here. People sometimes, be, they are offended by the fact that we say there's only one way to God and that, that we are an exclusive religion. And, and that there, we're not just saying we're one religion among a, a many and we just think we happen to be a little bit better. No, we're saying there's just only one way. Okay? And again, that's offensive. And they, people will say, well, this is very narrow, and this is arrogant, and it's, it's, it's not, you know, the operative word here is inclusive. It's not inclusive, right? And as, as Christians, we have to say, um, actually, it is quite inclusive. And the reason why we say that is because when you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, many times, and you find this throughout the Bible, but especially during the ministry of Jesus Christ, you find Jesus inviting all to come to him and place their faith in him. For instance, I think of um, Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't say, come to me, some of you, you and you and you, but not you and you. He says, come unto me. We call this a, a sincere summons. The free offer of the gospel. He says, come, come to me, all you. It doesn't matter what race, what culture. It doesn't matter what sins you have in your life currently or sins that you've committed in the past. Whoever you are, whatever class, whether you're rich or poor, black, white, Jew, whatever you are, whatever your background, he says inclusively, he says, come, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened by your sin, and I will give you rest. The exclusive part comes where Jesus is saying, but you have to come to me, to no other but you have to come to me, and I will give you then what you want, right? Forgiveness and a right relationship with God. And you know, the, the, church, the church of Jesus Christ in the best of times has always, always believed this, always embraced this, the beauty of this, actually, and have always taught it. All right, now, with that in mind, if you could put the, the catechism up there again. Okay, thank you. 
Actually, what we see in this document, I'm going to spend just a couple minutes on it, is an explanation of what we call the exclusivity, but also this, what we call the sufficiency of Jesus. Look at the, the, the question. Very simple words. Why is, Jesus, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Remember, Jesus, Greek, Yeshua, Hebrew, Savior, Deliverer. Answer is, because he saves us, not just from some of our sins, all of them, and because salvation, and here it's drawing directly from the words of Acts 4, verse 12, because salvation is not to be sought or even found in anyone else. That's a clear statement on the exclusivity of Christ. We need Jesus. No one else. Jesus. Now, it's followed by question 30. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else also believe in... Notice it doesn't say just the Savior Jesus, but the only Savior Jesus. So I've said this before, and I'm going to say this upon occasion, that when the writers put this catechetical document together, they paid very close attention to not just the phrases, but the very wording. And the, the operative word there is the only Savior Jesus. So the reason why only is a very important thing is this. Um... There, there, are, there are many people, and there are many religions in the world, who honestly, in many ways, don't have a problem with Jesus. Now, there are people who are agnostics or atheists, and people don't believe in God at all, who find just the mention of the name Jesus really offensive. And we get that. But there are many people, many religions, who don't have a problem with it. For instance, Roman Catholics. You remember in the, um, in the, the question it talked about saints that, that tells us the kind of historical time period in which it's written, which is written during the time of the Reformation, where there are Roman Catholics today who believe, who believe in saints. And these are people who lived exemplary, meritorious lives on this earth, and when they get to heaven, they are uh, given that opportunity to intercede for us in prayer. Now, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 says there's, there's no other mediator between God and man or intercessor other than Jesus Christ period. We don't need any other mediators. We don't need Mary. We don't need the saints. Jesus is completely sufficient as a mediator, as a intercessor between us and God. But you take a look at the Hindus. Hindus, like I said, when you go, when I went on the ship and I saw all the gods of these Hindus, in a sense, these images or these pictures lined up in the rooms of, of uh, these him, Hindu devotees, these disciples of Hinduism, if you would talk to an Hindu, Hindu they don't have a problem with Jesus. They don't even have a problem with Jesus being viewed as a god. Okay, I'll just take Jesus and put him on my shelf with all the other gods. Okay? Or, for instance, uh, Muslims. Muslims have no problem with Jesus. Jesus is a great prophet. Okay? So there's, there's, there's religions that don't, in a sense, have a problem with Jesus per se. But when you talk about Jesus as the only way, and when you talk about Jesus as the only one who's completely sufficient in terms of his personal work to get us to God in a right relationship with God, then all of a sudden it becomes offensive. Because now you're talking exclusivity. Now you're talking the only one. And yet we confess that he's the only one who, and we looked at this probably a couple months ago. Remember when we were looking at the that who Jesus was, that Jesus alone is qualified as both God and man in order to bring man, to bring humanity to God. No one is qualified to do that. No one. So I, I want to, uh, and, 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 and our very text, Peter substantiates that. So I just want to end very um, finally and somewhat personally with this. 
through the years, um, have preached many times on, on, these, on these two simple concepts of the exclusivity and the sufficiency of Jesus. And, you know, there, there are many, uh, there were many, there have been many people in the church who have been a part of the church for a long time, but also many people who are grappling with the claims of the Christian faith and aren't quite sure where they're at with this all, who, who say, okay, after, after you speak on this and after you explain it, I, I get it. It's not too difficult. I understand the exclusivity and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. But the, what they struggle with is, is in the end, in a very experiential way, if this, is, if this is something that is actually for them. They struggle with it. And they, they, they struggle with it because, for, for a number of reasons. One is because they can't quite get away just, uh, I don't know how to put it, how rotten they are, how sinful they are. And, you know, this, this goes for, as I said, for people in the church, but also people who are coming to grips with who Jesus is and what the church is all about. They look at their lives and they kind of go, man, for years I did this and this and this and I thought this and this and this. And, or they're dealing with such severe sins in their lives. I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking very serious stuff where they just, it, it just, it, it's loaded up in their hearts and it weighs down upon them they're kind of like David. I think it's uh, Psalm 130 where David says, Lord, if you should count all of our sins, if you should put them all together, who could ever stand before you? And the answer is like no one, right? No one. Or they say things like, well, if this is all true and, 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 I, and I, I believe this, then why don't I always feel this? Why do I feel so unworthy? Why do I feel so rotten? Shouldn't I feel something better? And if I don't feel something better within me, then do I really even believe it? And, you know, they, they, <laughs> they struggle on the insides with these kinds of things. Maybe you have this as well, where, where you think, you know, it's, it's, like the, it's like the man where Jesus healed this, uh, this father, father's son, and Jesus asked the, the man before he healed the son, he said, do you believe? Do you believe I can do this? And the man, remember, he said, I believe. Uh, help my unbelief. We struggled. Um, and people like that oftentimes have a view of God where you ask them, do you believe that God loves you? And they, they want to say yes. They want to say yes. But in reality, in the end, oftentimes they think that God is the kind of father who rather than loving them, doesn't ultimately give them what they deserve right now, and he kind of tolerates them, just kind of tolerates them. Because ultimately, here's the point, ultimately it just all seems too good to be true. Everything I've been talking about tonight, the exclusivity and the sufficiency of Christ just seems too good to be true. And you won't know it, it is too good to be true. At least from a human perspective, but not from God's perspective. And why is that? Because not only does God speak it in the Bible and God desires that we embrace it with a simple childlike faith, but Jesus, Jesus is true. The gospel's true and Jesus is true. Jesus is a true Savior. Jesus is, is a unique Savior. Jesus is a personal Savior. Jesus is a powerful Savior. And Jesus is a sufficient Savior. And all he asks us to do, all he asks us to do, is not say yes to this 
and then try to spend the rest of our lives trying to work ourselves into God's good grace. Jesus says, I'm enough. I, I am enough. All I ask you to do is accept it with a childlike faith, to accept who I am and what I've come to do. And for you to embrace this, all you need to do is simply repent of all your sins, past, present. Bring them to me and embrace what I've come to give you. And that's it. That's it. Just come to me, he says. And then as a response of joy and gratitude, then live the Christian life. Don't live the Christian life because you think somehow you're going to then merit what Christ has already merited for you. Just do it as, as a response of gratitude and joy and love. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of the Christian faith. And it is for all of us here this afternoon, and not only all of us here, but also in light of what we talked about earlier in the service, it is for the people of the city. Right? So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glories of the gospel. We thank you for sending Jesus into this world. The very one, O oh God, who you have sent, no one else but him, so that through repentance and faith in him, we may find, O oh God, a relationship of love and security and joy with you. But again, through him. Lord, you've entrusted this gospel to us. Help us to be faithful with it. Faithful in speaking about it. Faithful in preaching it. Faithful in teaching it. And faithful in living it. God grant us that as Pathway Christian Church we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.